Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest. You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is laborunionnews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So if you're a laborunionnews.com subscriber and you get our morning digest every morning, you probably know that we put out a lot of content on a daily basis. And in fact, as laborunionnews.com's developed and we went live with it in mid-January, we've posted over 4,000 links to different articles about labor unions over on different subjects like bargaining, labor disputes, legal issues, etc., HR news, and When we started Labor Relations Radio, which is part of laborunionnews.com, I've tried to get guests on who could kind of fill in the blanks on some of the articles that we post. Now, about a week ago, there's an article out of Bloomberg Law, and it was about the Department of Labor filing an appeal of a decision by a federal judge down in Texas, which blocked the Biden administration from withdrawing a Trump-era rule that made it easier for businesses to classify workers as independent contractors. Now, if you've been listening to Labor Relations Radio over the last several months, we've done probably four or five episodes about independent contractors, the gig economy, freelancing, etc. And the reason I keep bringing this to the forefront is it's not out there enough. The gig economy consists of about 59 million Americans, about a third of the U.S. workforce, and there is an effort to bust apart the gig economy or break it apart. And the reason for that is independent contractors are not deemed as employees under the National Labor Relations Act, and unions can't unionize independent contractors unless they're employees. So there's an effort back in 2019 that became effective uh, in 2020, and it was called the AB5 bill out in California that devastated a lot of freelancers' jobs. And so there's been a back and forth tug of war, so to speak, at both the national level and the state level. Um, And at the federal level or the national level, that's the PRO Act. And so there's what's called the ABC test. Well, this decision uh, that came out from the the Texas judge was as a decision that blocked the Biden administration from withdrawing the Trump era rule. And it was, um, according to the Bloomberg Law article, the judge sided with an organization called the Coalition for Workforce Innovation. So I wanted to reach out and figure out, you know, who this Coalition for Workforce Innovation was and what they're all about. And in addition to find out what they had to say about the, the case that's going on. So Evan Armstrong, who's a spokesperson for the Coalition for Workforce Innovation, or CIW, and as well as Vice President of workforce, uh, which is labor and employment policy, and a member of the government affairs team, by the way, for the Retail Industry Leaders Association, 
I, I got him to come on to Labor Relations Radio, and we had a, a really wide-ranging discussion a little while ago, and I wanted to share that with you because we talk about the case down in Texas as well as the um, just overall what's going on in Washington with the NLRB, et cetera. So here's Evan Armstrong. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Evan Armstrong, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? Uh, doing well. Thank you for having me, Peter. I, uh, I mentioned as we were chatting before I, I hit the record button that um, I had not heard of CIW until I read an article last week about a lawsuit that was filed uh, against the DOL on, I think it was the reversal of the Trump policy involving independent contractors. So um, why, don't we, why don't we jump into what the CIW is and then what the lawsuit is all about? Sure. Well, with, with litigation, it's always a little bit of a winding road. Um, but uh, yeah, so CWI, the Coalition for Workforce Innovation, um, is a uh, coalition based in D.C., uh, but have members across the country, uh, and it represents uh, independent work, independent contractors, sort of in all facets of the economy. So rideshare, delivery, freelance, journalism, you know, kind of everything under the sun. And CWI uh, was put together to really be um, the vehicle to talk to policymakers in DC uh, about um, the breadth and scope of independent work in the economy, the power of it, and sort of the popularity of it uh, among independent workers for various reasons. Um, so in my role as vice president of workforce policy for the Retail Industry Leaders Association, you know, we were excited uh, to join this coalition and be part of this because independent work is and it has a strong nexus with the retail industry. Um, we are competing for part-timers uh, with the you know sort of gig gig economy on-demand platforms where folks can work um, as easy as they want, right? Whenever they want, and uh, that's a, a talent issue for for the retail industry. So we wanted to have a perspective on it. Um, so CWI uh, was supportive uh, of the Trump administration's update to the economic realities test, uh, which was uh, done by the department of labor there. And we submitted comments, uh, sort of in the, I guess, uh, late in the Trump administration, as they were finalizing the rule, um, we supported the final rule that was uh, really finalized, you know, days or maybe a week or so uh, before the end of the Trump administration and before uh, the President Biden's inauguration. Um, we filed suit against the Biden Department of Labor because uh, we thought they had unlawfully frozen and then rescinded a dutifully final rule. Um, we filed suit in the Eastern Federal District Court uh, down in Texas. Uh, Judge uh, Crone agreed with our arguments and essentially reinstated uh, the Trump era rule uh, and said the department had not um, gone through the appropriate APA channels to rescind a final rule. And essentially, that's where we stand now. The rule, the Trump rule is uh, the law of the land. Uh, but we did just receive the intent to appeal from the Department of Labor, Department of Justice. Uh, and so we are uh, heading to the Fifth Circuit and uh, we'll have more in the coming weeks. But uh, that's about the state of play. So let me let me ask you a couple of questions. The article, which is a Bloomberg Law article, um, it indicates Uber and Lyft and everybody when they think of gig workers think of Uber and Lyft. But this affects a lot more people, right? Absolutely. Um, and uh, there, there's no offense to my, my good friends at Uber and Lyft and uh, those uh, companies. Uh, they're strong members of CWI and uh, support the mission 
of the group. Um, but one of the main reasons CWI was created was to show lawmakers that there is so much more to independent work in this economy uh, than rideshare or, or even you know, delivery. Uh, so uh, I think it's important uh, to know that. And uh, when I speak to uh, Bloomberg or whoever, I always uh, emphasize that it's beyond uh, Uber and Lyft, but uh, they are uh, they are interested in clicks and uh, those companies. They're big brands, and they typically uh, uh, they want to be mentioned, or they are mentioned more because of who they are. Right. I've had a, a couple of episodes on the podcast where we've had um, some of the fight for freelancers folks on Kim Caven and and uh, a couple others, I believe, um, and they are very active because they are your freelancers. Like they do the writing and they do, you know, a whole bunch of different things. Um, a lot of this stemmed from AB5, or at least the publicity stemmed from AB5 out in California. And and the reason I keep having episodes about the independent contractor issue, issues, a lot of people don't realize how large of the large part of the economy it is. So where, where this current case stands is you folks filed suit, um, you won the decision, and now the DOL, and I'm not sure why the DOJ is involved in it. Do you? Are you? Are you? Um, well, I, su- I suspect that uh, the interest in defending the ruling is on a broader um, government, you know, sort of territory, right? So the court said that the the agency or the, the, the Labor Department did not follow the APA, um, you know, so the, the justice probably has a, an interest in defending uh, what the processes are for all uh, administrative agencies to, uh, you know, finalize or rescind rules. Um, but we don't know. Uh, we won't know uh, what their arguments are, obviously, until the briefing. Uh, we, we don't know whether the uh, Justice Department will uh, attempt a stay motion of the lower court ruling or an expedited um, hearing. Uh, so a, a lot of this is a little unknown at this, this point, but we, we should hopefully know more and have more clarity in a couple uh, in the next couple of weeks. Is there any, is there any kind of timeline as to um, how long this would take or whether it's months, years? Um, so uh, I think litigation, it typically takes uh, a, a long time. We've had, we've basically had this litigation going for about a calendar year. Um, so it could potentially go another calendar year uh, depending on all the different machinations that may occur, you know, obviously uh, court dockets schedules are uh, always fluid. And so, um, you know, there's a briefing schedule that's pretty uh, formulaic at the fifth circuit, but you know, it could, it could take several months. So while, while we're in hiatus mode, we're still under the Trump ruling, right? Or the Trump rules. Yes. Um, And uh, the, uh, the acting wage and hour administrator, um, and uh, others at the department have publicly stated they are following the, the district court ruling, the uh, updated economic realities test uh, that was finalized in the previous administration is law of land. They recognize that. Um, and I think well, if they didn't, they would be in a little bit of trouble, uh, I think. But uh, that's that's where we stand now. So, you know, the department's probably working with the justice, uh, with working justice on litigation. The department may be uh, contemplating rulemaking uh, on this issue. We will know more on that front when they come out with their next uh, what's called unified regulatory agenda, where they sort of lay out their short, medium, and, and long-term plans. 
So we may get a little clarification on what their intentions are from the, the rulemaking uh, part of this. Interesting. So does um, CIW get into other issues like uh, joint employer issues that are kind of kissing cousins to the to the independent contractor? Not uh, not uh, at this point, and I don't suspect uh, the coalition would um, delve into those. I mean, there's plenty of uh, other coalitions and groups that focus in on on joint employer uh, and do a great job highlighting uh, the dangers of uh, some of the policy decisions from the Obama administration and, and some that we see in the PRO Act and what we probably expect to see from this administration. Um, CWI was uh, set up with the intent of focusing on independent work uh, very specifically. Uh, so we didn't, you know, we don't want to get into areas and just sort of spread the brand out <laughs> beyond uh, beyond that, because I think the, the coalition's brand has been built very strongly uh, on the messaging around independent work. Yeah, I, had, I was curious because there's a um, decision that ca- came out of Massachusetts involving a 7-Eleven, and I, I did an episode with uh, one of the folks at the IFA, and it literally, it's, they're like almost hand-in-glove type of issues. They just kind yeah, of bleed over. Yeah, and I think originally under the you know uh, Obama administration, and I think how you know, organized labor sees these issues uh, as intertwined is uh, together they they create more opportunity to organize more eligible individuals. Um, right. I mean, that's that's all it is. I mean, that's that's the intent of all the rulings that we're going to see out of the, the board, the National Labor Relations Board. That's the intent of everything the department's going to do. It's really the intent of a lot of what this White House has set out to do, uh, and they haven't. They haven't tried to hide the ball. Uh, you know, saying uh, the president saying he wants to be the friendliest president to organize labor uh, in history. I think he's 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 really doing well there. Uh, he's uh, promoting the pro act every time he can. His administration is uh, you know promoting the pro act, uh, being very vocal about um, organizing drives and and really all their policy decisions from the labor department to the board, EEOC. Everything is really dr- to drive towards that. Yeah, he uh, he talks about the PRO Act again last week, which hasn't been brought up in a while because everybody assumes it's dead. But I guess we won't know for certain until after the midterms if it's got a, a chance or not. Yeah, I, I would have, I cautiously say it's uh, dead this Congress. Uh, they don't have even 50 uh, votes because they can't get uh, a few Democrats on board. And I think those Democrats understand uh, the states that they represent. I think they understand the damaging consequences of the PRO Act. Uh, so thinking of, uh, you know, Senator Cinema and Kelly in Arizona, you got Senator Warner in Virginia, who's a former governor who used right. to espouse the, the, the importance of right to work in Virginia uh, to attract business and economic growth. So um, the PRO Act would uh, repeal all the right to work laws across the country. So I think that there's I think just it shows them that it's a very far-reaching, aggressive, radical bill, and it's going to be hard to get unified support among the Democrats, and certainly Republicans, by and large, are not going to be supportive of that bill either. Yeah, that, and I, don't, I know this is not your ballowick, but one of the things that I don't think has been focused on enough with regard to the PRO Act, you know, some of the, the bigger things are things like getting rid of right-to-work laws and, and et cetera, but the binding arbitration provision that's in the PRO Act has not been discussed at all. And that is, it's always been to me a job killer. Same thing with the Employee Free Choice Act, you know, 12 years ago. 
Yes. Uh, you know, the problem with the Pro Act, um, which is a, a, you know, there's a benefit of the Pro Act is that there's so much in it. Uh, the problem is that there's so much in it uh, right. that you can't possibly talk about every provision. And if you're in sort of the political advocacy world like I am, you really try to get your messaging down to, you know, three to five bullets. And, you know, to be honest, it's hard to get to the arbitration one when you have right to work, when you have card check, where you have joint employer, you have the ABC test, um, you have the persuader language. I mean, you just, you know, there's so many bad provisions in the PRO Act, it's hard to get to all of them. But I agree with you in the arbitration language is um, yeah, equally as uh, Well, bad. it's essentially the federal government dictating what uh, job creators are going to pay their employees through an arbitration panel. And and for workers, because I'm also a former blue-collar worker, union rep, and all that stuff, it also takes away their right to vote on a contract. So you're just stuck with whatever the contract that the government arbitrators dictate. And it's really um, interesting to me, you, you say that, you know, so much of the pro act and so much of this myopic focus on empowering organized labor um, really cuts against this administration's focus on competition in markets and competition in the labor market specifically Um, you know when you think about competition you want to maximize mobility you want to maximize choice uh, for workers to say this job's bad that job pays more i'm going to go work there Um, And I think there are some smart ideas that everybody agrees on, right? You know, making sure that non-compete agreements aren't applied universally, right? They need to be, you know, more of a a narrow thing for certain jobs. You know, you want occupational licensure to be limited so you have mobility. But they say that, uh, and then administration officials also say, well, we need to pass the PRO Act, which may create uh, industry-wide sector bargaining units uh, in, in, you know, restaurants or retail, uh, which would necessarily limit mobility and movement of uh, individuals uh, in the economy. So I think they're crosswise with their messaging a bit uh, because they're so focused on doing the bidding of their organized labor friends. Yeah. Are, are you following the Starbucks campaigns at all? Of course. Uh, I think everybody in, uh, in our space is... Uh, tracking what's happening what's been fascinating about that is um and again i know this isn't why we we're getting on to the podcast but um what's been fascinating about that is the seiu has spent the last 10 12 years trying to unionize um the fast food industry but industry-wide or company-wide not site by site and with starbucks now they're doing it site by site yeah, Which means I, I, you've I, got individual bargaining units and you're going to have to bargain individual contracts store by store. I think that it's very fascinating what's happening with Starbucks because it's a very organic, decentralized, bottom-up model, right? Whereas, you know, I think organized labor, AFL, SCIU leaders, you know, try to dictate what's happening and they say, we have to, we have to spend all this money on political donations and the PRO Act. And they forgot about, Oh, they're, you know, sort of bread and butter is, you know, grassroots individuals at specific locations. Um, and I think that's probably why yeah. it's been difficult for Starbucks to uh, match the intensity on the ground or really even track because it's so it's, it's a it's a wildfire uh, for them uh, right now. And I do think every retailer is looking at that uh, and making sure that they are perhaps rethinking their their labor relations strategies, their communication strategies, engagement uh, strategies with their with their frontliners to ensure that they have a pulse on what's happening and and can uh, 
and can at least respond rather than being on, I think, on the defensive um, from the from the get go. So I think it's, it's a very interesting uh, case study. And we all, I think it's going to continue, um, you know, over the over the next several months. Yeah, I'm not sure how truly organic it is, because, you know, Richard Bensinger, who's who's the former director of organizing for the AFL-CIO, has been involved with this for since the beginning. So and I think he and some others are kind of steering it from behind the scenes a little bit. Um, and I think they've got some salts in at various locations as well, just due to the turnover. But, it, you know, it, it's still it's taking off like wildfire. Yeah, it's it's and it's harder for uh, it's harder for you to know on the ground uh, at that sort of micro level where it's you know a, a store you know a, a Starbucks cafe with you know five to ten maybe five to twelve employees. It's uh, it's difficult to to track all that. Right. So, um, what is RILA and what does that do? So the Retail Industry Leaders Association, uh, we are a trade group uh, based in D.C. We represent the largest retailers in the country. So our members are operate in every state. Uh, they're all uh, hundreds of thousands uh, you know, of employees, uh, represent sort of the, the, only the largest uh, uh, retailers. So, um, you know, we advocate for a number of different issue areas, uh, obviously workforce, but tax trade, uh, a whole a host of things. Um, and you know our mission is to to lift up the industry and um, you know support good policies that uh, promote uh, our members and, and and the retail industry broadly. Okay, yeah, I I was not familiar with that until we started uh, communicating online and and it was there's so many things or so many entities down in DC so it's kind of hard to keep track. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's an association for everything. There, right. Really- right. Yeah the the farm combine association just about everything else. Um, so what what else are you seeing that's coming down the pike with regard to labor issues or workforce issues? Well, I, I think everybody uh, like me are situated at, at associations or at companies uh, are, are looking at the board, uh, the general counsel. Uh, Jennifer Abruzzo um, has made all has, has made it very clear uh, what the indications, uh, what the priorities are for for her office and what the board is looking to do is overturn many of the, the Trump era board precedents and return them to Obama era. Um, the, the GC, I think, is intent to go beyond uh, that and, you know, go uh, back to, you know, the 1930s laws around carjack uh, with Joy Silk right. uh, with the Joy Silk memo and, and really, I think, ban uh, captive audience meetings, which uh, we should never say captive audience meetings, but they are employee information meetings uh, that are uh, generally popular uh, for employees to learn about uh, a labor organizing drive. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's an aggressive um, GC board and um, we're, we're heading for a fall, winter and sort of over the next uh, two years to have, uh, you know, a lot of uh, policy changes that we're going to have to uh, face. Yeah, it's... Um... I've been doing this a long time and it's uh, just, you know, stepping back a little bit. It would 10, 15, 20 years ago, stuff that I was really, you know, passionately concerned about. Now it's just kind of fascinating to watch. And it's like, wow, they're going to do that. Okay. You know, and I think, um, so there's ways, I don't want to say work around, so to speak, but, you know, captive audience meetings, assuming that they do ban them, Okay, so you're going to have to go to voluntary meetings, you know, which is which to me is not that big of a deal because I do meetings all the time. And it's, you know, just a matter of 
ensuring that people know their voluntary meetings, establishing a past practice of having, you know, coffee and donuts in meetings, things like that. I was thinking about this last night. I don't know if you saw that Connecticut just, uh, Ned Lamont, the governor just signed into law, the state level captive audience ban. Right. And, you know, in the old days that would have been preempted under the national labor relations act. I don't know that that's going to be preempted at this point. So, I mean, in theory it should be, but I, it's, you've got a GC that's probably right along with the new Connecticut state law. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And I, I will defer to smarter attorneys uh, who know a little bit more of the weeds, but it, you know, Section 8C, I believe, uh, of the act uh, allows uh, employee, employers to speak to employees uh, in, in this way. Uh, the Supreme Court's upheld uh, that, right? Uh, I don't know if the, the GC's memo uh, changes 8C. I don't think it does. Uh, I think only a congressional uh, action would change uh, the, the, the core of the act. But uh, I think it's been a fascinating case uh, with Connecticut. I think Something that you may not have thought about, but one thing that my group of, uh, you know, labor executives that I talked to when uh, Florida signed, uh, the, when Governor DeSantis signed the, the Stop Woke Act, which was about, you know, diversity and inclusion uh, programs by employers and really prohibited them. You know, my first reaction and our first reaction was, well, that's a prohibition of speech, employer speech. So that's a problem. And wouldn't you think that a a uh, pro-union governor in a blue state may pass a law that prohibits uh, speaking about union organizing, and and there and, and it didn't take long, uh, and I suspect we'll see more of those uh, type of laws, unfortunately, and hopefully, um, you know, as cases move through the courts, there's clear violations of uh, of free speech rights. Right. Um, yeah. Interestingly, with because Oregon's got a similar law in there, and it it for the most part, at least as far as I know, has been kind of toothless. Um, employers have had campaigns up there and, you know, unions have had campaigns. Employers have done meetings in Oregon. I don't know that it's been enforced, or at least I haven't seen any cases, but it um, it will be interesting to see where this kind of shakes out, Connecticut being one, but just nationally. And, it, and if you've been following, um, so Apple, as you probably know, has gotten a couple of attacks, right? couple petitions, or I think one's a petition, the other's just like massive organizing activity up in New York. Um, so there's been two charges filed, and I haven't seen the details of the charges. One was filed down in Atlanta, the other is up in New York yesterday. And it appears as though from the press that those are for merely doing the captive audience meetings. So not the content of the meetings, just the mere fact that they're doing the meetings. And that to me kind of, and I'm not sure what the union strategy would be, excepting for if I put my union hat on, I know I've got a friendly GC sitting there wanting to ban captive audience meetings and also do Joy Silk bargaining orders. If if CMEX, which is the case that they're talking about the captive audience meetings, if the NLRB rules on that, if it goes prospectively, Prospectively, it'd be one thing, but if it goes retroactively, these cases are coming coming right after CMAX, right? So they could actually get a bargaining order just based on the captive audience meetings that are held now. I think. Yeah, I think you're you're pointing to that this is a concerted strategy. Um, it's it's not hodgepodge. Uh, they right. are they are putting these pieces together uh, because organized labor does not like 
secret ballot elections because they know it's harder for them to win uh, because if they can't pressure uh, or employees aren't feel, aren't signing cards, uh, then they may actually vote the way they want to vote. Um, and unfortunately, if captive audience meetings are considered an unfair labor practice, then the board is going to say, you held that meeting, it made the secret ballot election uh, invalid, so we're going right. to rescind that, which we, we saw in Bessemer for very, very de minimis violations, I think, uh, they're going to, and then they'll say, well, uh, according to the Joy Silk, uh, we're going to just allow card check to, to rule the day, uh, which federal courts have said over and over again that the secret ballot election is the best process uh, for uh, bargaining uh, and learning or to determine whether a bargaining unit uh, should be there. So um, they are really dismissing a lot of uh, precedent, really dismissing a lot of court decisions, and really dismissing um, what workers, employees, people actually want, which is information and a fair, balanced choice, and a, and a choice that they can don't have to fear for, you know, being ostracized or coerced by their employees so or their coworkers. So, you know, it's a, it's a disheartening to see, but I mean, we're clearly getting into this sort of era. Yeah. And it's, I don't know where it's going to end up, frankly. I mean, it's, you know, you've got the midterms. I don't know how much the midterms are going to affect the NLRB because, you know, the NLRB is appointed by the president. But. I think you're going to see um, the midterms are going to be about inflation. Uh, they're going to be about the road case to a certain extent. They're going to be about um, maybe recessionary type uh, impacts in the economy. And, you know, the pundits seem to suggest that it's, you know, the Republicans are going to take the House uh, at the very least. That's going to create an opportunity for more rigorous oversight by a Republican majority in the House over the board. So I think it's going to elevate the issue. The other thing that's going to happen is all these decisions by the board are going to start getting appealed to the courts. You're going to get more right. uh, issues that are going to be at fought in a more neutral, uh, perhaps, environment than the, the NLRB is. Um, so I think next year, uh, you could see a lot more sunlight on the activities of the board. And I think you know, policymakers, unless you're on certain committees, you don't you don't track where the NLRB is from day to day. But I think next year, more people are going to see this, certainly if uh, the Republicans are in the majority in the House, perhaps the Senate. And certainly if the courts start striking down uh, certain decisions by the board and then lawmakers have to uh, question what are the what's the board doing? Um, so I think a lot of those uh, dynamics are at play. So I tell you know, RELA members, you know, the folks that I talked to, I said, you know, we're going to get a hit, you know, on these issues initially, but the game does not end there. That's really the beginning of the game. Uh, and we'll fight, you know, you know, tooth and nail, you know, in the courts and in the, you know, you know the, the court of public opinion. Right. Um, budget issues would be another area that the midterms would affect, right? So I'm, I'm mean, seeing a budget for the NLRB. Right. I mean, all the agencies, including the board, have asked for plus up funding. That's, uh, you know, per usual. Um, it'll be interesting to see if uh, the Congress can negotiate a long term spending bill where, you know, it's all give and take. Right. They may, you know, they may give a little uh, plus up for certain agencies because the Republicans want certain things. Uh, so you always see that back and forth in the. You know, the, the smoke-filled back rooms are really the appropriations process, uh, which right. I've never really been a part of, but that's that's generally how it works. But if they can't get a long-term spending bill, then what they'll do is a continuing resolution, which is a, a continuation of existing spending levels. 
I think anybody who wants the board to stay at a lower uh, budget is cheering for a CR. Um, and certainly I would uh, prefer that the board not have more resources to enact their, their dangerous agenda. Well, I'm, I'm seeing um, articles and tweets and stuff about the current budget that the board is operating under, and they've already blown through the budget due to Starbucks. So they're, they're extremely limited on resources right now due to all the Starbucks campaigns, which is delaying everything else that they're trying to do with hearings and, you know, unit determination issues, things like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it creates more work when they overturn uh, dutifully, you know, fair elections uh, down in Bessemer and they have to, you know, oversee another one. So, uh, right. you know, they're giving, they're giving themselves more work uh, to do. Right. Well, and, and you're talking about the uh, Amazon election, the first one, the down in Bessemer, we still haven't heard about the second one, which was, I guess there's like 400 ballots that were challenged or something. That's again, yeah, the last time out. I saw it, it was, uh, I guess two, I guess it's like the Pennsylvania primary uh, Senate race. There's, they're still counting the votes, I guess. I don't right. Know. <laughs> well, I think that, yeah. So they probably have to have a hearing over each individual that was challenged and that's going to take a while. So that's, um, and of course, if they're, if all the hearing officers and agents are all working Starbucks campaigns, it's going to be a while. So yeah, uh, they all agencies have to uh, uh, deal with the resources that they have. Right. So you you're obviously following the uh, Amazon stuff. You've um, you've followed the stuff that's going on in Staten Island. And yeah, I mean, uh, some somewhat. Uh, you know, Amazon's not a member of Rela, uh, but obviously uh, have an interest in seeing what happens there. And uh, I thought it was interesting that the the Whatever happened, uh, you know, with uh, with small Christian Smalls at the at the one facility wasn't translated to another. Uh, so you wonder if the tactics that were used are uh, replicable in other places across the country. So we'll we'll see. But it's certainly interesting. Yeah, there's um, there's one article that I saw where, and you see these little things and little snippets within the body of a really longer article. But they they of course had salts in or organizers in from, uh, in fact, is I think CPUSA or someone, somebody else had, you know, an outside plant in uh, the second facility. Can't remember. Some, they call it something, something five, um, building five or something like that. Um, but they apparently had pulled the organizers out from building five over to JFK eight, which was the first one. And they were out there for about three weeks trying to unionize you know, the first election. And the, the comment was from one of these organizers is we lost momentum. And, you know, it's, you see these little snippets. So um, it, it appears to me because they had a, a month between one election to another that, you know, Christian Smalls was out doing the media tours and not really focusing on number two, thinking maybe they thought they had it in the bag, but not really sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I mean, uh, it's it's tough. It's probably it's a lot of ground game work uh, that you have to do. Um, yeah. We'll we'll see if uh, it can be replicable. You know, I think the thing that I try to when I talk to policymakers, um, you know, about the Pro Act, you know, it's always the right to organize. It's it's in the law. Nobody is disputing that. Uh, what we deal with the Pro Act is it so overwhelmingly changes the law to the extent where it's unfair uh, to workers or it really pluses up organized labor at the expense of workers and businesses. Um, and I think what, what I always point to is 
yeah, it, it's you know good for the workers if you know they wanted to organize uh, a plant. But I always point out there was two thousand workers that voted against unionization in that in that New York mm-hmm. plant, Staten Island plant, and they have zero choice uh, but to pay the dues, or they have to work somewhere else because in New York is not a right to work state. So I'm thinking of you know Georgia would have uh, their right to work law uh, repealed. Virginia would have their right to work law appealed if the Pro Act was passed. Arizona. And I said, it's great if you have a choice, but there's no choice for the 2,000 uh, right. who voted against it. And I always point that out. I mean, if we want a fair, equitable society of choice and people can and can you know have their own destinies uh, in their own hands, you know, that's it's just it's patently unfair if there's no choice for those 2,000. Yeah. Well, you know, part of the problem with um, not only what the board's doing, and it, although the Pro Act does not contain card check, the board is doing that now. Um, this whole concept of employees going into a process without knowing all of the ramifications. And back during EFCA, when they had card check in there, one of my, my big things was, and I've said this for years, is if you want to put, quote, union busters out of business, pass a truth and organizing bill, you know, that union organizers have to tell the truth. And there was one that um, was actually introduced probably 10 years ago. And it's like, just bring that back, you know, that it's the truth in union organizing or, or even, uh, I think it was Tim Scott. They had the, um, secret ballot protection act, right? So, you know, some of these could be handled with a single bill. It doesn't have to be long. doesn't have to be a lot of debate out uh, over it. And even in Congress right now, you know, the Congress congressional staffers just got the right to unionize, right? I think they get, they get secret ballots. Saw an article, they don't get card check. And you, you know what's also, uh, and it points out the, I think the uh, inconsistency, I won't say hypocrisy, but inconsistencies on that um, is the updated NAFTA, the, the UFMC, UFMCA bill that was uh, you know passed by Congress. It explicitly calls for secret ballot elections in Mexico. Right. And, and, and you know, it was a letter uh, that was signed by 75 House Democrats who supported that concept. Uh, you know, many House Democrats voted for uh, that bill. And you point out that another bill that they support would get rid of that. Um, you know, they're it's sort of like you know ties them in knots. <laughs> yeah. So I think yeah. it's you know, it, it's it's completely reasonable uh, to have secret ballot elections. As I've said, the courts agree that that is the best process, and a rational person would understand that. Yeah, it's a tough decision, um, and uh, it's something that's going to impact me and my family and my career and my job. And I, you know, I want to make sure I'm making the right one. And I don't want to feel like I'm pressured. It's a completely reasonable position to take. I, I think it's that's why EFCA did not pass uh, at the end of the day, because I think they're just ultimately it's not a good policy. Well, at the secret ballot election process, and, and I've said this for years because I've been involved with literally hundreds of campaigns, the the paper ballot going into the cardboard box is probably the cleanest type of election that much more so than than our normal societal elections. I've, up until the pandemic, I had not seen any elections. Um, I think there's maybe one that made the press that where the process was tainted due to, you know, something going on that was a little hinky. Um, they're just, they're clean elections. And, you know, uh, the pandemic changed that because everything went to mail ballots and there's a whole bunch of 
cases involving, you know, ballots not getting in because of the mail and stuff like that. But, you know, it's just a clean process. And why Democrats would want to remove that being, quote unquote, Democrats, democracy, it's just kind of amazing. It's it's a foundational principle uh, for us as a as a nation. So it's I think those uh, talking points uh, are strong, and that's the reason why they're used uh, to push back on things like the pro act or uh, car check. And I think they're going to be used quite often when the the board tries to implement this choice silk memo in in certain cases. So yeah, uh, it's going to be a a long fight. You know, I had a I did not realize this until recently, and somebody pointed out sort of the timeline of. Uh, how long the board, uh, the Dem board majority is going to last. And it's really going to last the remainder of uh, the Biden administration and possibly into even another one. Cause you look at sort of the, the expiration of the terms for the board right. members and, and they're going <laughs> to, it's going to be a, it's going to be a Dem majority for uh, a long while. So we're going to have uh, uh, a couple years here of just uh, some tough uh, fights. Right. It would be interesting, hypothetically, if um, there is not a second Biden administration, if a Republican administration were to come in, if they were to fire Jennifer Abruzzo the day of the inauguration, as happened to Peter Robb. I, I think from a from a good governance perspective and just from a, you know, let's not have this, uh, you know, the temperature on our nation be so high. I think it's not a good idea, but I would almost guarantee that will happen. Well, it, so the fascinating part of the whole terminating the general counsel under, you know, Trump's general counsel. Um, and for those that may not remember this, that was uh, Peter Robb, who was fired on the day, I think within the hour that uh, Joe Biden I think it was, was about nine, nine minutes later after the inauguration. Right. <laughs> Um, so the fascinating part of that is the NLRB and the GC, the current GC actually defended the decision, argued the case. And I think it was just within the last month or so it got, um, got upheld in the fifth circuit. Right. And so it'll be interesting if a different administration comes in and terminates the same GC who defended the termination of the GC. So. Yeah, I mean, I would assume <laughs> that uh, the uh, GC Abruzzo understands that if there's a change in administration, um, she's she's going to get the axe. I mean, it's just going to happen. Right. Uh, I think she probably understands that, and that's probably possibly why she's trying to do as many things as she can in the next right. couple of years. Uh, but again, I, I think just from you – know, I put my hat back on. I was a counsel on the Hill, and you know, I, I generally just – would prefer more of a, a good government long-term approach. I just don't, I don't think it's, it's good uh, to have uh, this type of, uh, you know, process of firing these GCs like this, but turnabout is fair play. It's politics. It's going to happen. Um, and I remember speaking to some Senate offices after uh, Rob was fired and, you know, they, they weren't particularly upset. They're like, well, that just means the next president can uh, do, do this. And I'm like, Okay then. Uh, so I guess we're not gonna. I guess we're not gonna have a, a fight here. So yeah, I think it'll happen uh, potentially. And you know, again, we'll, we'll go through another pendulum swing. Yeah, it's again. I've been doing this a long time. So I've I've been you know labor relations union side way back when. Right, that was during the Reagan administration. And although there was a little swing during these different administrations, the, it wasn't such a sea change. And then. 
probably in the last, it really got intense back in the 2000s um, when Bush was in office and he tried to appoint a couple members to the board. The unions had the protests outside the NLRB, shut down the NLRB, et cetera. And so, and then Obama came in and, you know, Craig Becker got on the, on the NLRB and promised to recuse himself, didn't, you know, that sort of stuff. And it's just gotten worse and worse. And if you're a business owner out there, big or small, and you see these pendulums swinging, it's like, how do you plan your labor employee relations, HR practices? Now the big thing coming out is the, is the handbooks, right? Right. They're, they're hammering the Starbucks handbooks, which affects everybody nationwide. Right. They're going to say a handbook violation uh, is enough to overturn election. A handbook violation is, is going to be uh, used as a cudgel against employers to sign neutrality acts, uh, neutrality uh, agreements. I mean, it's yeah. Uh, and again, I think I agree with you. The pendulum swing is not good. Uh, it's not good for businesses, big or small, uh, to operate under that. And I think it's going to be imperative for you know our members, all employers, to you know insulate themselves uh, with good practices that they believe you know uh, do align with the law. Uh, unfortunately, the law changes, and you know you're getting ULPs for 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 captive audience meetings, and that's not even. You know, they're, they're, they are legal. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult environment. Um, you know, I'll say on, on the handbooks, I think they're going to get into a bit of a hornet's nest on that issue. And here's why. Um, and I go back to the card check. Reasonable, rational people believe that handbook policies that try to um, craft a certain decorum in the workplace, right? You can't yell, ex, ex, you know, expletives or, uh, you know, at, at your coworkers uh, are good. They're probably the best policies to have. So you have uh, good, uh, harmonious workplaces free from discrimination or harassment. Those are good policies. Uh, and unfortunately, the view of uh, the Democratic majority of the board and the GC is that um, they think any handbook policy that has even a remote chance of violating, um, uh, you know, NLRA rights for union speech or anything like that are going to be uh, avoided, right? Are they, they're not going to be allowed. And I think that's a that's a dangerous line to try to draw because uh, when you when you uh, when the board reinstates an employee who was caught on video screaming obscenities to a coworker, possibly in violation of Title VII under the Equal Equal Rights Act, um, they're, they, they're getting themselves crosswise with other major statutes that generally Americans support. Uh, and so I think that's an issue that they're going to get a little conflicted by. And I think it's an area where um, Republican majority and the oversight next year is really going to, you know, focus in on. Yeah. And what you're speaking about is the um, Gerald Bryson. Uh, he was the Amazon worker who called, uh, he got an, into an exchange with a a co-worker while he was outside protesting and I think called her crack whore and bitch and a whole bunch of other things, right? Th things that every rational person who viewed the video would be like, that person should be fired. Right, right. <laughs> and the individual was fired and uh, was reinstated by the board because they said that was protected union speech. Now, I want the board and chair of the EEOC boroughs to come out and explain to people why that's not a violation of Title VII. So right. I, think that, I think that they will have opportunities to do that in the next 12 months. Yeah, it's a fascinating time right now. That's all I can keep saying. 
So, so we're, we're always going to try to find these opportunities to, to show how they're overreaching, show how their views of policy are so far out of the mainstream of rational thought here. Uh, and I think ultimately that may be, you know, that they get over their skis and, and that's where they'll get into a little trouble. And so, you know, we're building the cases, uh, you know, a lot of the folks who I work with and we're, mm-hmm. we're sort of tracking all this, we're going to, a lot of it's going to come at us, but we're going to have opportunities to, to sort of counter. Yeah. So um, anything else coming down the pike that everybody should be aware of? <laughs> we haven't, we haven't listed enough, uh, enough yet. Uh, there's, there's quite a bit. I mean, you, you know, on the labor relations side of the board, it's going to do what they're going to do legislatively. Not much is going to happen certainly this year into the election cycle. And if there's a, um, a split Congress or a Republican Congress in a, a damn white house, there's not going to be much on the labor front. So it's really the regulatory machine is going to go in overdrive. You know, the Department of Labor is going to issue or uh, an overtime rule uh, trying to pick up the work from the Obama administration. Uh, they're going to do uh, they have new Davis Bacon regs uh, that they're working on. So the regulation, the regulatory th- uh, machine is going to is going to pick up. The EEOC is about to get their Dem majority for the first time under the Biden administration. So that that particular group has been quiet because uh, the Republicans have maintained majority there. Uh, but uh, Janet Dillon, current Commissioner Dillon, is going to roll off in July, uh, and there's going to be a new EEOC uh, Dem commissioner. And so they're going to they're going to require more data collection, the EEO1 component two data collection. They're going to uh, do far more investigations around systemic bias in organizations and really hold those cases up. Uh, so I think Again, your employers are going to have to gird for a rough uh, run here, uh, but uh, there's a lot of advocates like myself that are are pushing back as much as we can. It's interesting you just mentioned the um, systemic bi- uh, bias in organizations. I I literally before we got on um, was watching and posted a video of an EEOC hearing that took place earlier this week in which they had a uh, minority female construction worker who actually happens to be an iron worker. And part of the Chicago building trades talking about how union discrimination works in the building trades. And it's a fascinating discussion because she's obviously in the union on construction sites and, you know, went through the practices on how women are held back um, just, you know, because they have to go through the apprenticeship and all that sort of stuff. And it's really kind of fascinating. Um, are you familiar with the, uh, it's the OLMS regs on persuader activity and this new thing that they're coming out with on supplying companies involved with labor disputes. You have to now um, fill out LMs if you supply employers with information. I haven't gotten into this. Somebody mentioned it to me and said it was a workaround uh, from the Obama persuader rule that we know was struck down in, in, in federal court. Um, I'm not familiar with the details, but I probably should be. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, somebody mentioned it to me last week, but I haven't had a chance to look into it. Yeah, and I, it's very interesting, and it, it wouldn't affect somebody like myself. We fill out LMs all the time, um, but there's always been on the LM form a box to check and re- that would require you to file if you engage in providing employers with information or providing information to employers with labor disputes. And 
I haven't seen any directions out of it or directives out of it, but it sounds as though um, what they're trying to do is say that a labor dispute could be an organizing campaign. And as a result of that, um, anybody who supplies information, which could be speeches, videos, things like that, or advice that they would have to file LMs. Interesting. So just again, yeah, it's the same concept of trying to out uh, any of the consultants or folks who help an employer or attorneys. Yeah. yeah attorneys right. or a trade association. Right. Uh, perhaps. Uh, no, it's uh, it sounds exactly like the issue we, we had a few years ago. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping I can get somebody at the OLMS on a podcast and I can go through all these issues with them. Like what exactly are you looking for? Because, you know, I mean, again, we file all the time, but it's like, be specific. If you want me to, file an LM when I tell an employer to change the flavor in the coffee machine because it'll make employees happy, I'll file over coffee machines. I don't really care. Just let me know. Right. I know some people are opposed to filing, but you know, that's big deal. (laughs) So, well, I think, I think sometimes uh, things are intentionally vague um, for whatever reason. And that may be the case. Uh, So I always uh, wonder if certain things coming out of bureaucracy or the administration are whether they're, just because they're not very intelligent about it or that they're are devious about it. So, you know, yeah, you know. And, and it's, you know, they're, they're just redefining things that have normally, you know, for decades been like this one part of the LM twenties on there. Nobody's even considered that because it's, you're not in talking about a strike. You're not, you know, a labor dispute to most people is a strike or a lockout. Right. And this was just a weird one. Yeah. Take a look at that. It's, it's, uh, it may be problematic in the very near future for some folks. I'll add it to the long list of uh, yeah, exactly. That's kind of why I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> Just while you're adding adding to the list, there's another one. Right. Um, anyway, well, Evan Armstrong, we've been on uh, close to an hour, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to get to know you and talk trade stuff. For sure. Well, thanks, uh, Peter. Appreciate the conversation. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff happening. So glad to come on and. Uh, inform your readers about what we're working on, what the what the retail industry is looking at. You know, I'll I'll, I'll do a quick plug. Um, Rela and uh, IRI Consultants just uh, launched uh, their 2022 Organizing and Retail Report. I saw that. Uh, it's, it's a great uh, it's a great uh, piece of data, but also some really really excellent analysis uh, around what employers should be thinking about in terms of sort of this new era of labor organizing. That's a little bit. A little bit different, um, and Gen Z is a, a, a little bit different of an animal uh, to deal with. So I, I, I highly encourage folks to to, to check it out. If uh, I don't know if you can provide a link uh, when we post the podcast, but uh, if you want to reach out, Evan.Armstrong at Rela.org. I'm always happy to chat. Yeah, I, yeah. In fact, I downloaded the uh, the report. I have not had time to read it yet, but um, I'm friends with some of the folks over at IRI as well. Anyway, well, Evan, thank you. I'm going to uh, put a bunch of links under the audio portion of this episode so folks can check you out and check out Rila. And uh, I'll see if there's a way to put the report link under there as well. So Great. Well, thanks, thanks. for having me. Peter. Sure. Appreciate it. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio.
Well, that was Evan Armstrong, a spokesperson for the Coalition for Workforce Innovation, and as well a vice president for the Retail Industry Leaders Association. And as you could tell, there is just a ton of stuff happening in Washington, D.C. And it's important to keep up with that information because what may be lawful today and what may have been lawful for decades is changing almost by the day. And obviously, that's not a plug for laborunionnews.com, but you should be a subscriber because I try to highlight this stuff almost daily. Um, in any case, I'm going to leave a bunch of links that uh, about the Coalition for Workforce Innovation as well as the Retail Industry Leaders Association and the uh, Labor Activity and Retail Annual Report that Evan was mentioning. Go ahead and check them out. Share them with your colleagues. Uh, it's important information and keep abreast of the issues. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out through laborunionnews.com. Uh, you can hit us up at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. Or on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.